And we'll be reading verses 9 through 11. In order to get the context, I'm actually just going to begin by reading uh, in verse 1 and read up through chapter or verse 11. So, Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And to write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we're the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you would give us grace to understand what Paul is writing about here. And not simply on an intellectual level, but deep in our hearts, in our conviction that, that Lord, from this day forward, the pursuit of knowing Christ would, would be all the more real, all the more clear, all the more evident in our lives. And Lord, that there would not be a single person here who leaves today without trusting in you for full forgiveness and full pardon for their sins. We pray that you would do a work within us so that we might know you more and worship you as you deserve to be worshipped. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as you remember, in chapter 3, Paul really is explaining what it means to be a true Christian. And we see this particularly in verse 3. He summarized Christianity there. He says, For we are the true circumcision. That is, we're the real believers, those who have had a circumcision of the heart, who worship in the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. That's his summary of what it means to be a believer. And last week we looked at how Paul actually looked at his own life as an example. He said, if there's anybody out there that could put confidence in their flesh, it was me. I had fantastic Jewish heritage. I was devoted to the Pharisaical law. In particular, in in regard to righteousness, I was blameless, at least according to the standards of the day. But then he says, now that he's come to know Christ, all that he once thought gain, all that he once found meaning in, he now finds meaningless. What he once thought gain, he now considers loss for Christ. And now we see in verses 9 through 11, 
why Christ is so valuable to him. Why it is that Christ is so precious that he looks at everything that he once found gain. And again, it wasn't just his self-righteousness. It was everything that this world could offer. All things I count as even rubbish. Why would he say that? Well, it's because of these truths right here. Verses 9 through 11. This is why everything pales in comparison to knowing Christ. And he explains this as the the Christian's triple gain. Incidentally, I would, I, well, I would summarize these things with three R's. Righteousness, relationship, and resurrection. In fact, you could even summarize this in the, the three key doctrines of the Reformation. Righteousness, justification. Relationship, sanctification. Resurrection, glorification. It's the same principles. Just put in these words. And incidentally, you can remember these three R's. Righteousness, relationship, and resurrection, when you share the gospel with somebody, when somebody asks you to share the hope that you have within you, these three R's can kind of guide your conversation as you tell them about why you love Christ. They can guide your discussion because they're central to what it means to be a Christian. This is a presentation of the gospel, as we'll see. Let's look first of all at the first R, righteousness. He speaks of this in verse 9. When he says, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness which of my own that is derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And I want to begin by directing your attention to the first verb found in this sentence. Or in this phrase. It's the word found. It's the Greek word eurisko, where we get the English word eureka. Eureka, I found it. It it essentially means that. It means to discover something that you were looking for, for instance, or to be discovered by someone. Now, this prompts the question, of all the words Paul could use, why the word found? I mean, who does he expect to be found by? I mean, who's seeking for him? When does Paul expect to be found? Well, I think he uses this term because of his knowledge of Old Testament scripture, particularly Psalm 14 and Psalm 143, where it says, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then Psalm 143, 2, I do not and do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight, no man living is righteous. See, Paul knows these Old Testament scriptures. Again, he was a Pharisee. And he knows that the day is coming when every person will have to stand before the Lord Almighty in judgment and give an account for everything they have done, whether good or evil. And even Paul, who according to the standard of the Pharisees would be considered blameless, he knows that that standard will not suffice on that day. For what's it say? There is no one righteous, not even one. Paul knows that. And this is why Paul doesn't want to have a righteousness that's found by keeping the law, because he knows it won't work. It's not enough. It's not good enough. Such a righteousness found by following the law is deficient. It won't save him. 
Now, some of you, I know, work in uh, companies and in areas where there's toxic chemicals. Now, just imagine that there was a massive uh, spill of a highly dangerous chemical. How eager would you be to go into that room where this spill is just taking place and uh, clean up that spill if you knew that the hazmat suit that you were wearing was full of holes in it? And, all, and you know that it's just one hole in a hazmat suit is all a toxin needs to, to get inside the suit and kill you. Yet the holy glory of God is far more powerful than a mere chemical. And we know that we have many holes in our righteousness. Many holes, millions of holes. And we will one day have to stand before the holy glory of God and give an account. The Apostle James tells us this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all of it. Just one failure is one failure too many. And we have failed millions of times. Let's just consider the commandment that God gave to Moses. In Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. I mean, which one of us has done this? Even come close to this? Maybe in fleeting moments. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Righteousness is clearly what every one of us needs if we're going to avoid eternal condemnation. But as the Scriptures make very clear, none of us is righteous. Not one. And the only way we can escape condemnation then is if we are made righteous. And that, as you know, is why Christ died. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He made Him who knew no sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this brings us to the quality of Christ's righteousness. Paul writes, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You see where the righteousness comes from here? It comes from God. It's God's righteousness. Christ offers us His righteousness. And because it's His righteousness, it's perfect, without holes, unlike our righteousness derived from the law. And therefore, it alone can save us from the wrath of God. That's it. There's nothing anybody can do except receive the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And that's what Paul tells us. You can acquire this righteousness one way alone, by faith. Faith is the means for getting this righteousness. What the Bible tells us is that all a person needs to do then to be saved is just to trust in Christ. That is, Christ's righteousness can be attained simply believing that He was the Son of God and that His death on the cross alone can save you from your sins. 
And so to be saved by faith means you look completely away from yourself and you put all of your confidence in what He has done alone. Now Jesus describes the kind of faith that saves in Matthew 18.3 in this way. He says, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Just think about how a child trusts their father, particularly a godly father. They know that no matter what happens, they will be protected. That their father won't let any harm come to them unless it's really for their good. That he will be provided for, loved, and trained to be like him. The father's going to care for him and help him learn to be a man. And this is why the evidence that one has saving faith that he truly trusts in Christ is demonstrated by what we see next in pursuing a relationship with him and striving to be like him. So notice verse 10. We talk about the relationship that we have with God, that I may know him. The idea of relationship is what's captured in the word know. And as I mentioned last week, this word know is, it goes far beyond just an intellectual knowledge. It's, it's a deeply personal, it's a, it's a knowledge of intimacy. For instance, you guys might know, have a favorite actor, favorite celebrity, favorite athlete. And you could, you could list off all these facts about them, but you know that celebrity in a very different way than you know your spouse or your parents. There's an intimacy. That's the kind of knowledge that Paul is speaking of here. Paul wants to know Christ, to be in a relationship with him. And in fact, this is the very purpose for why Christ came and died on the cross. He says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is why you were saved, that you would have a relationship. Let's just look deeper what this relationship with Christ actually means. Because you'll see that this knowledge goes beyond just being in relationship with Christ. It actually entails conformity to Christ. Similar to how a son would conform their life to their father. They want to be like dad because of their relationship together. For Paul to know Christ was to become like Christ. I mean, for instance, just remember what he said in chapter 2. I mean, all this is in Paul's mind as he's writing this letter. I know we've been studying it for months, but Paul wrote this in probably a couple of hours. All this is in Paul's mind. Remember what he said in chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You, You want to think like Christ. Have this mind like Christ. Imitate Christ. Paul even says multiple times in the Scriptures, follow me as I follow Christ. Christians should be seeking to imitate Christ if they're in relationship with Him. And this is important to emphasize because many people believe that they have a relationship with Christ merely because they acknowledge that they need Him in order to be saved. Just like the Judaizers that Paul was rebuking at the beginning of chapter 3. They weren't denying the need for Christ. They might even say, we have a relationship with Christ. And they're... Millions of people in the world that say they, they think they have a relationship with Christ just because they recognize they need Him to be saved. 
That is not what it means to know Christ. In fact, Jesus makes this clear in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, when he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. They thought they knew him very clearly. And Jesus uses that word very specifically. I never knew you. That doesn't mean he didn't know who they were. I mean, he's God. You were never in relationship with me. You were not following me. The Apostle John also makes this explicit. In his first epistle when he wrote, The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. You see, you can't know Christ and not pursue Christ-likeness. If you think today that you know Christ and you are not actively seeking to be like him, desiring to be like him? Brothers and sisters, you're, well, you're not a brother and sister. You don't know him. And again, this doesn't mean that a Christian will never sin. But of course, when we do sin, we're going to repent. We're going to be grieved. We're going to hate our sin. We're going to do everything we can to stop sinning because we want to know Christ. We want to be like him. We're not, we, we hate the fact that we're not like him. That is our greatest failure. It's our greatest grief because we want to know him. And again, remember that Paul has been arguing against those who put their confidence in the flesh. We are the real circumcision who put no confidence in the flesh. And what he shows us here is that when our confidence in, is in Christ, it leads to conformity to Christ. But the opposite is also true. When our confidence is in the flesh, it leads to fleshly indulgence. Notice how he concludes his argument in verse 17. Just a few verses later. Not there. Just look in your Bibles, just a few verses later, verse 17, chapter 3. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Again, follow me as I follow Christ. For many walk, of whom I told you often and now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things, not like the mind of Christ. You guys see that? Those who are Christians seek to have the mind of Christ. They humble themselves like Christ in Philippians chapter 2. Those who put their confidence in the flesh indulge the flesh. Fleshly confidence leads to fleshly indulgence. Confidence in Christ leads to conformity with Christ. Very clearly, we pursue what our confidence is in. Which begs, of course, the question, what is it that 
your confidence is in. Where's your confidence? What are you pursuing? Now notice that Paul specifically delineates two things that he wants to know. And the, that's the power of Christ's resurrection and fellowship of his sufferings. Notice he says, sorry, I keep flipping all over. Got a little lost there. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. See, this, this is coming right out of what it means to know him. So what Paul particularly wants to know is the power of Christ's resurrection. That is the power that is now at work in Christians, helping them to become Christ-like, helping them to resist sin. The power that James and Rosie just talked about in their testimonies. Power. They're different. They've experienced new life. They've been born again. And it wasn't just new information. They've been transformed. It's a miracle. It's amazing. This, this, this hit me during Easter. How easy, nobody, at least today in Christianity, very few people wonder, um, are shocked when we say as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and he rose from the grave. We go, yeah, we believe. Nobody, very few Christians today doubt that Christ rose from the dead bodily. But do you tell a Christian that you can't be saved, you haven't, you haven't been saved unless you've been born again and they're shocked? Like, you, you mean the, the, our hearts have to be transformed? It's not just believing information? It's not just praying a prayer? No, it's not. You must be born again. You must experience this transformation that gives you a desire to pursue Christ and no longer the things of this world that the rest of this world puts their confidence in. This is the power that is at work within Christians. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is currently at work within all believers. Paul says this in Ephesians 1. He prays for them that they might understand this power. The surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Who brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So this power is really the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives us this power. Not just information, power to resist temptation, to resist sin, power that changes hearts when we proclaim the gospel to people. Power that allows us to speak and, and see the word transform lives. Power to move the hand of God in prayer. I mean, I, I, I was thinking of the text where Jesus says, if you just have faith the size of a mustard seed and pray for this mountain to be moved, it will be moved. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit that answers those prayers. And who's the Holy Spirit? He's God. And He's at work within you who believe. Paul wants to fully know that power that is fully latent in him, within him. Do you realize this, brothers and sisters? If you're a Christian... You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You have God the Almighty dwelling in you. No Marvel superhero compares to what you have, what you possess, the power that is within you. Paul says, I want to know that power. He doesn't want to be like the wealthy owner of a Lamborghini who just has his car set aside in a showroom and he shows it off to his friends, but he never drives it. 
No, Paul wants to take that car out on the Autobahn and see what it can do. He wants to see power. Because he knows it's true. He's experienced in his own life and he wants to see it continually in the lives of others. He's not interested in just having a bunch of people who agree to the same doctrinal statement. He wants to see people who are passionate about knowing Christ so deeply that they're willing to count all things as loss for the sake of knowing him. Why? Because of the power that's at work within him. The other thing that he wants to know is the fellowship of his suffering. Now this, as I'm reading this, which, I mean, just in all honesty, I thought, what is Paul talking about? Why in the world would he think that this might be somehow compelling to the Philippians? Like why, when he says Philippians, I want, you know, that's because that's what it is, his heart. He wants them to follow him. And he says, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. I can see why that might be appealing. But then he says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Why in the world would he find that a draw? Why does Paul want to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings? Well, clearly the point isn't that Paul wants to suffer. But that he wants to know Christ. He wants to be Christ-like. And he knows that the experience of suffering actually works to make him more Christ-like. Suffering is not a threat or something that needs to be avoided. Rather, it is a blessing. Why do we know that? What's he say earlier? You guys remember this, Philippians 129. For it has been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Remember when Chris was preaching on that? It's a blessing. That's what that word means. It's a blessing. To suffer for Christ's sake. And also James makes this clear. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So part of the reason that suffering is good is because it actually produces spiritual maturity. Do you see that? So just like... For a person, drinking milk, eating, sleeping, and exercising helps us grow physically. Reading the Word, praying, being in fellowship, and suffering produces spiritual maturity for the Christian. So if you want to grow to be stronger, you eat, you exercise, you get good sleep. You want to be a better Christian. You search the word diligently. You pray. You're, you get as much time with other believers, asking them questions, encouraging them, praying for them. And you willingly trust God when he brings suffering into your life. To be Christ-like is to share in Christ's sufferings. Notice what Peter says. For you've been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, Leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Notice also what he says in chapter 4. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You see that? Share. That you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Also, Paul says this in Romans 8, 16 and 18. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. 
if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. Suffering is not incidental. It's part of God's design to make you like Christ. It's not a thing to be avoided at all costs. That doesn't mean we long for suffering. That's not the point. Paul isn't saying, I want to know suffering. He's saying, I want to know the fellowship of suffering. I want to suffer with Christ. Well, why? Well, it's seen in the word fellowship. There's a different kind of fellowship and connection that a believer has with God when suffering. Suffering makes us more prone to worship. The promises that are bought on our behalf of Christ's death for us become more precious to us when we're suffering. You re- you, when you suffer, you realize with all actuality how difficult Christ's life actually was. It brings that, the, the, that abstract ideal that Christ led a difficult life. And when you're suffering, you realize it really was difficult. Because the things that we're experiencing are nothing compared to what he experienced for us. And so what's it do? It causes us to praise him. We realize how much he truly loved us. That he would go through all of that for us while we were yet sinners. It causes us to worship. It brings the life of Christ out of theoretical into reality. You see his life in its real beauty. But what I also find provocative about the way Paul is structuring his argument here is that he defines his relationship with Christ in these two ways. Knowing Christ means knowing the power of the resurrection and fellowship of suffering. I mean, think about it. Put, put on your thinking caps with me. Think deeply with me. Why in the world would he use these two terms? I mean, if somebody were to ask you, what's it mean to know Christ? I mean, how would you explain it? Why in the world does he say, use the terms power and suffering? What, and what's their connection? Notice they're kind of paralleled. Grammatically, they're parallel. They go together. Well, I, as I thought about it, I wondered, where are, is there any other place in Scripture where these ideas of power and suffering are connected. And my mind was brought, as maybe yours is too, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And you guys remember in that passage, that's where Paul is pleading with the Lord because of this thorn in the flesh that he has. He's in the midst of great suffering. He says, I pled with the Lord three times that he would remove it. And how did God answer that prayer? He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, I am strong. You see the connection? It is in suffering that Paul realizes the very power of God. These are not two different experiences. They go together. 
So it seems that the main idea Paul wants to experience is the power to resist sin and trust God in the midst of the trials. So this is really the power to trust and recognize how God is working all things together for good as he trusts in him rather than in himself. It's a reliance upon God working and no longer upon his own working. Very unlike his opponents. See, again, follow the big the bigger thought. Paul is making an argument here. I mean, what's Paul's point here in Philippians chapter 3? He's combating what the Judaizers were teaching. Where did the Judaizers put their confidence? In following the law. But unlike the Judaizers, true believers worship in the Spirit of God, glorying Christ Jesus with no confidence in the flesh. True believers abandon the pursuits of this world in order to conform their life to Christ. And you see how this follows? I want to know the power of his resurrection, fellowship is suffering, to be conformed to his death. The way we come to Christ's likeness is through those two things. Power, suffering. To the point of eventually dying. The word conformed is the Greek word sumorphizomai. It means to come to be in similar form to something. You might hear the word morphe in it. It's the word form, right? Paul's point is that he wants to become Christ-like in every way, even to the point that he would be willing to die even as he died. Paul wants to be Christ-like in every way so that when the time of of Paul's death comes, he would be like Jesus. He wants to know Christ thoroughly. As John Wesley said in the hymn that we sang, emptying himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. You see the heart of Paul, how, how it's like this? Notice what Paul says in Romans 9, 3 about his fellow Jews. He says there, I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. For this reason, I, sorry, I got ahead of myself. You see that? I wonder if I had that on the, you see Paul's heart there? He so loves his fellow countrymen, the Jews. He would, he, he, he want, he would be willing to go through tremendous torture. Some people think he's even speaking about hell here. He wants to be like Christ. Or 2 Timothy 2.10, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. I mean, you, you guys remember Christ's statement. I came not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. That's what Paul wants. Paul says, I want to be so Christ-like that I no longer pursue my will, but the will of him who sent me, even to the point of death. That's what he means. He wants to be conformed to Christ's likeness so that he would even die like Christ. Paul wants to be Christ-like in every way. 
not like the world that he has left behind. Just like that old spiritual sings. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. That's Paul's heart. It's Paul's desire to be completely Christ-like. And it's reflected in the third gain of being in Christ. The resurrection. In order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It, it could be, the word in order that is actually a, an interrogative for those who are interested in Greek. It's a question. It could be better translated somehow. And his point is that he's willing to accept whatever it takes to become Christ-like. He knows very well that this perfect, mature state will never be arrived at until he dies, until he receives his resurrected body. He knows he's not going to reach perfection in this side of the grave. And that's, again, why he says what he does later in Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Conformity to Christ now leads to conformity to Christ then. Do you see that? You want to know if you're going to rise in the right likeness of Christ on that day? Are you conforming your life to Christ now? And that's what Paul's saying, that I might know him and the fellowship and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of suffering being conformed to his death, that I might attain the resurrection of the dead. There's a pattern there. You don't attain the resurrection of the dead if you don't know Christ in this life and are pursuing Christ likeness. You don't get glorification if there's no justification or sanctification. That's what he's saying. Death to self now leads to eternal life then. 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Now all believers will become completely Christ-like on the day when he returns. And we receive our resurrected bodies. And Paul describes these resurrected bodies in 1 Corinthians 15, 42-49. He explains that we're going to have bodies that are no longer corrupted by sin. Bodies that are no longer subject to weakness, subject to pain or injury. In fact, it says in the prophet Daniel says that we will have bodies that will shine like the stars. And this is why the small glories of this life mean so little to Paul. Because he knows this world is passing away. And he's focused completely on eternity for the things that will last. Everything in this life passes away. And just think about it. It's something we don't like to think about. And I don't mean to be morose, but just to really draw out Paul's heart, why he loves Christ. Everything we build is eventually destroyed. 
the children that we invest our lives in will eventually leave us. They'll get married and begin their own families. The companies that we pour our lives out into are going to lay us off. Or we're going to retire and they're going to forget about us and move on. The cars we purchase get old and fall apart. The friends that we have such close relationships with move away and we lose contact with them. Our loved ones die and like them we will also. I mean, if you think about it, the longer we live, the more we lose. Because life is about loss. And that wasn't the way the Lord designed it. That's not what he wanted. But that is the result of sin. Sin brings death. And this is a point, the point of Ecclesiastes. You guys know how Solomon summarizes his point in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. Life is vanity. It's empty. And that's why he concludes this. He concludes that book. When all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. And this is why Paul so desperately wants to be found in Christ. That's where we started. That I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes from Christ, because he knows one day everything will be lost, and he will have to stand before the Lord, and he wants to know that his eternity is secure. And this is why he tells the Colossian believers, Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth. Peter repeats the same idea. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love how John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, how he famously depicted this in his hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Fading are the world's best pleasures, all its boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children knows. Did you catch that last phrase? Solid joys. Joys that don't fall apart. Joys that you don't lose. Lasting treasures. Only those that are found in Christ really know. And he illustrated this truth once saying, That is John Newton illustrated this truth. Suppose a man was going to New York to take a possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. When he's going to receive a large estate. Like John Newton and like Paul. 
the more we understand the gains that we have in Christ. Namely, that we have righteousness. That He gives us sanctification or a relationship with Him. And a promise of resurrection or glorification. The more we understand all the gains we have in Christ, the more Christ-like and the more eternally focused we will be. Let's pray. Lord, I do ask that you would, again, help us to see the truths that we've talked about here, that Paul himself experienced. Lord, we don't deny that there isn't pleasure to be found in this world. There certainly is. We've tasted it. But it fades. And Lord, I pray that for all of us here that you would open our eyes to behold all the gain that could be found in Christ. That he would be our greatest treasure. We would come to know him and become like him. We ask these things in Christ's name.